Father, we have your spirit, your word, your local church. We have all we need to be complete in thee. Please bring all three together beautifully during this exposition. Our great God, we come to the table hungry. We need the meat of your word. We need you to spread a banquet before us and let us feast. We come to the table hungry. And we come to the table dependent. Dependent solely on your spirit to make the book live. It's not as simple as picking up the spiritual food with our hands and moving it to our mouths. The spirit must gather the food and bring it to the lips of the soul. If we are fed today, it's not due to our great listening skills or to the giftings of the preacher. If we are fed, it will be by your spirit. We come to the table hungry. We come to the table dependent. And we come to the table confessing. Father, we confess we must often look ridiculous to you. Boasting about what we will do for you, yet harboring hidden sin. We come confessing our sin. We are not without sin. We are full of it. You should not let us in. We should not be granted access to this banquet. But our invitation reads, only because of Jesus you can come in. God, you are unlike any other. You are incomparable, unattainable. We do not seek to be you. We seek to worship you. You made us sons and daughters by sending your son to die on Calvary. That's why... We must come confessing. Father, we come to the table hungry. We come to the table dependent. We come to the table confessing. And many of us come to the table hurting. So help deep call out to deep. May the deepness of your word mend the deep wounds of our souls. Administer gospel healing. Make the sad soul glad and the confused soul trust. We come to the table hungry. We come to the table dependent. We come to the table confessing. Many of us come to the table hurting, but none of us come to the table alone. You've given us a marvelous local church. So as we feast collectively, Speak collectively. There are some among us who do not yet have a seat at the table. They are without Christ and without redemption. Use this time to draw them to yourself. To make them new creatures. To bring them to repentance and faith. Redeem them right in the middle of this exposition. And do it for your glory alone. Father, we have a tendency to be blind to our own sin. Please use the text to make us see. We have a tendency to be downcast. To live as if your son has not resurrected from the dead. Use this text to fill us with hope. 
remind us that our feelings are not inerrant. Your word is inerrant. This is our corporate plea. Amen. This is our 19th sermon in our 1 Corinthians series. There are 16 chapters in the book, and we are beginning chapter 10 today. We are more than halfway through. You will see from the graphic, we plan to spend 30 Sundays in the book. We've already covered the church in Corinth, thank God for the church, the church and her challenges, the unimpressive, a theology of preaching, the wisdom of God and the spirit of God, babies and farming, God's construction site, correctly viewing pastors and ourselves, the Messiah's misfits, the neglected practice of church discipline. That was a fun one. Airing dirty laundry in public, sexual sin, answering questions about marriage, sex, and singleness, all of life for all of God. Be wise about Christian liberty, praying, paying for your gospel meals, and then last Sunday, the soul winner. And today we arrive at chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. God's history lesson. The FCF for FFC. God's history lesson, the FCF for FFC. I'll unpack the title, then I'll unpack the text. Paul is going to take us on an Old Testament journey. He's going to detail the events recorded for us in the books of Exodus and Numbers. How do you preach one sermon on two books of the Bible? Well, you give an overview. You hit the high points. And that's what Paul does for us. Paul will cover 40 years of Israel's history. He will tell the complete story of Israel's 40-year journey in the Sinai wilderness. Actually, he tells the complete story twice. He tells it once in verses 1 through 5, then tells it a second time in verses 6 through 11. He's not going to give you a chapter and verse for these events but he will allude to them. I hope Paul's quick account of Israel's history will spur you to go back later today and read those accounts for yourself. Since Paul only alludes to them, I will only allude to them. Since Paul didn't unpack the whole story to the church at Corinth, I will not unpack the whole story to the church at Faith Family. I will honor his development and process of fault. History... History was my worst subject in high school and college. I've had to force myself to develop an appetite for history. And you may be like me and say, I'm not a history buff and I didn't come to church to get a history lesson. Why is Paul giving the church at Corinth a history lesson and therefore forcing you as an expositor to give us a history lesson? Well, there are two reasons. First, because we don't want to repeat the history. In 1948, in a speech to the House of Commons, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill famously said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. We like to make the present moment the arbiter of all things, but history should be. 
We have a tendency to think that we're so advanced, history has nothing for us, nothing to offer us. What could 3,000 years ago on the outskirts of Egypt have for us on the outskirts of Nashville? You can't say, I don't need history. Because history belongs to God. You need God's history. It's, it, it, it reveals how he, he, history reveals, he revealed his actions toward mankind. Let me say that again. It's how, history is how he revealed his actions toward mankind. God chose to gradually reveal himself in history. He says, look at these events and how I dealt with people because it will reveal my character, what's important to me, and what I expect. When we read the Old Testament, we are not reading an imaginative book of fairy tales. We are reading of God's interventions with mankind. We are reading how God is laying out redemptive history. Why is Paul giving the church at Corinth a history lesson and therefore forcing me as an expositor to give you a history lesson? Well, there are two reasons. First, because we do not want to repeat the history. Second, we need the example. Twice in our text, Paul tells us that events in Israel's past serve as examples. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. The word example is typoi in the Greek from where we get our word type. This history is to function as an example, as a type. When God's people in the Old Testament fled Egypt, two million ragtag Israelites, it was written down for our help, to give us an example, to give us a type. These examples were meant to warn us lest we fall in the same ways they fell. This was written down because we faced the exact same temptations. 3,000 years later. You are facing the same temptations they faced. Satan is not creative. He's not innovative. He comes with the same stuff. Always jab, jab, right hook. The way of escape for them is the way of escape for you. When we read the Old Testament, we are not reading dry, dusty, irrelevant stories, but rather a historical record divinely inspired for our benefit. Written down. So you would pay close attention. Now this explains the first part of the title. God's history lesson. Now let me explain the second part of the title. The FCF for FFC. Something I always look for. When reading an Old Testament passage. Is the FCF. The fallen condition focus. Brian Chappell first helped me with this. What is the fallenness in these people that translates into my fallenness? We are both fallen. What is the mutual human condition that these ancient people share with us contemporary people? Instead of always going to these Old Testament stories looking for a hero to emulate, we should be looking for a heart to evaluate. Let me say that again. 
Instead of always going to these Old Testament stories and looking for a hero to emulate, we should be looking for the heart to evaluate. Why is Paul talking to a New Testament church about Old Testament events? Because they were written down for that church. Written down for you. Always on the heart level, not the hero level. They fell here and you can fall here. That's the language of verse 12. They fell this way, take heed lest you fall that way. This history is 3,000 years removed from us and over 1,000 years removed from the Corinthians. God tells the church at Corinth, I am going to show you how my people fell over a thousand years ago. Don't fall like them. You Corinthians are beginning to look a lot like my Israelites. My new people are looking a lot like my old people. FCF for FFC. What is the fallen condition focus for Faith Family Church? We have more in common with the Exodus generation than we like to think. We share that same fallenness. Is that clear as mud? And instead of giving you that very confusing title, God's History Lesson, the FCF for FFC, I should have just titled it, Written Also for Our Sake. That's more succinct. Written Also for Our Sake. There are three movements in the text. The history of God's deliverances, verses 1 through 5. The history of man's sin during those deliverances, verses 6 through 11. The reasons you don't have to repeat that history, verse 12 and 13. The history of God's deliverances. The history of man's sin during those deliverances. The reasons you don't have to repeat that history. Paul will cover... 40 years of Israel's history twice, each time from a different perspective. The history of God's deliverances teaches us a lot about God. The history of man's sin during those deliverances teaches us a lot about man. The history of God's deliverances, God's holiness put on display. The history of man's sin during those deliverances, Man's sinfulness put on display. Paul's first time through this 40-year history reveals the heart of God. Paul's second time through this 40-year history reveals the heart of man, a litany of Israel's sins. And then finally, we will get to the reasons you don't have to repeat that history. This is where we will get really practical and bring it home. Bring history home. Apply history to the heart. Refuse to be guilty of Churchill's slogan and break the pattern. We will learn from history and therefore not repeat it. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. In other words, Paul says, remember our history, friends. The stories of the exodus and the wilderness wanderings have been repeated throughout our history and I repeat them to you. 
When they were on the run from Egypt after being slaves for 400 years, they all marched through the watery walls. All. From the youngest all the way up to the oldest. Paul speaks to a, a mostly Gentile church and calls Israel their fathers. He is showing continuity. They were the people of God. Now you are the people of God. Don't forget how God rescued his people from slavery. He brought them out. He brought his people out singing and dancing. Redemption gave them a song. Salvation made them dance. They were happy in their redemption. He brought his people out. He's a God who brings his people out of slavery. Verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. During the miraculous work of dividing the Red Sea, Israel was baptized into their leader, Moses. This doesn't mean they got wet. They actually came out completely dry. The Egyptians got a bit wet, but Israel came out dry. What is this dry baptism? It's a figurative use of the word baptize, meaning they were under the leadership of Moses. They voluntarily, voluntarily followed his leadership into the Red Sea, united under God's spokesman. Moses never had a baptismal service at the Red Sea. Baptized in the sea and the cloud. A cloud stood between the Israelites and the Egyptians as they walked. The cloud guided them and protected them. God gave his people salvation. He rescued them from the Egyptians. He redeemed them. Verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. Have you ever seen that on a menu? Spiritual food. Note the repetition of the word all. All is used five times in the first four verses. This verse is speaking about God providing manna for the children of Israel. He dropped angel food from the sky. He sent the corn of heaven. This was the original Krispy Kreme. And God's people feasted on it. Spiritual food means it was supernaturally provided. Verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. What is this spiritual drink? Just like with the food, it speaks of water that was miraculously supplied to these newfound desert dwellers. When God's people thirsted, God gave water to quench the thirst. The water came from a rock. The water coming from a rock happened on more than one occasion. We have record of it happening at the beginning of the 40-year journey and then at the end of the 40-year journey. Many theologians contest it happened at times in between as well. But God did not see fit to record those events for us. There, there's an old rabbinic tradition, a popular legend, that says the rock followed them through the wilderness. It grew legs and walked with them. As they walked through their wilderness journey, the rock walked with them. Could Paul possibly be referring to this legend by his language, the rock followed them? The truth is, the rock was not following them around. God was following them around. But wait, who is this rock? Paul preaches Christ from the Old Testament. 
He didn't preach Christless sermons. He gets to Christ quite quickly. He knows who gives the water of life. He says this rock is the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ caring for and ministering to the people of God in their wilderness journey. He concludes the real presence of Christ in Israel's history. Jesus Christ provided for the people of God long before Calvary. Calvary was the epitome. They were seeing a picture of Christ's provision from a rock that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ's provision on a cross. In both cases, a fountain flows from Jesus. In one flowed water, in the other flowed blood. One brought provision, the other brought forgiveness. Both brought satisfaction. One a satisfaction of thirst, another a satisfaction of wrath. One quenched physical thirst, the other quenched spiritual thirst. Jesus told the woman at the well, I'll give you water where you will never thirst again. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Notice the change, no longer all of them, now most of them. Most of the original Israelites who began that journey died in the wilderness and never made it to the promised land. Most of them is a masterful understatement. Of all the host of Israel, only two people, Joshua and Caleb, entered Canaan. An entire generation of God's people experienced the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the water from a rock. A whole generation experienced the miracles of God. And they still didn't make it. They had religious experiences with God. But they didn't make it home. After all these blessings. God still killed some of them. They didn't go in. Because they didn't have the faith to go in. Which leads us to this truth. God expects his people not only to start well. But to finish well. Good beginnings do not guarantee good endings. You need long obedience in the same direction. And this is what Israel did not have. They began the race well, but didn't finish well. They came out of the gates quickly, but slowed as time went on. They started strong in their 40-year wilderness journey. They obeyed, they obeyed, they obeyed. Then suddenly, they stopped obeying. They began to take for granted the God who redeemed them. They didn't value him as they once did. They didn't give him the glory due his name. Their redemption from Egypt began to grow old. They were redeemed, but no longer as happy as they used to be about it. They lost the joy of their redemption. They forgot what it was like to be in bondage, in slavery. Dear friend, does your redemption still dazzle you? Are you still amazed that God brought you out of Egypt? Have you forgotten what it was like to be a slave to sin? You have been set free. Does it still take your breath away? The fallenness in these people was that they kept forgetting where God brought them from. They had gospel amnesia, forgetting the redemption of God. 
no longer treasuring the fact that God brought them out? Are you no longer celebrating the salvation of God, your redemption? Have you forgotten about it? Do you have gospel amnesia? Just because God in his mercy allowed you to experience spiritual privileges, this does not guarantee your spiritual success. Just because God in his mercy allowed you to experience spiritual privileges, this does not guarantee your spiritual success. Israel was a very blessed people. They were very privileged people. They, they, they saw up close and personal some of God's most miraculous events. They experienced firsthand his historical redemptive acts. Although God gave magnificent manifestations of his power, some bystanders still didn't make it into the promised land. Privilege is no insurance against ultimate disaster. All the Israelites were joined together in these experiences, but not all made it. Experiencing God's wonder and grace is a privilege. It is not a guarantee. If Israel did what they did, having witnessed what they witnessed, do you think you are beyond this fate? Paul is carefully drawing parallels between their experience and our experience. Their privileges and our privileges. They experience redemption from Egypt. You experience redemption from sin. You've both went through remarkable deliverances. The privileges enjoyed by Israel are mirrored by the privileges enjoyed by the church. Their experiences anticipated the experiences of Christians in the New Testament. And the message for the Corinthians is this. Failure is possible. They all shared a common baptism, a common cloud, common manna, common experiences, but not all entered. You don't enter by proximity to miraculous experiences. You enter by faith. And beware that your privileges are not blinding you to your weak faith. Just because you are privileged doesn't mean you can't experience the displeasure of God. You abuse the privileges of God and you will face the discipline of God. God's redemption from Egypt points to God's ultimate redemption from sin. God's past saving acts point to God's final saving act. God's redemption from Egypt points to God's ultimate redemption from sin God's past saving acts point to God's final saving act. The Israelites, like the Corinthians, had a redemption story. Their concrete experience of redemption points to our spiritual experience of redemption. God's activity among his people in Israel helped to explain his activity among his people in Christ. The cloud signified God's presence among Israel. His spirit signifies his presence among us. We don't have God's cloud following us around. We have his spirit in us. God delivered his chosen people once, and he did it again in final form at Calvary. The history of God's deliverances, verses 1 through 5. Here's what we learned about God. He has a desire to rescue his people, to redeem them from slavery. 
Redemption has always been at the heart of God. Here's what we learn of God. God calls his people to holiness and expects that they strive for it. He holds his people accountable for their actions. He expects his people to exercise faith and not rest in their privileges. The history of God's deliverances teaches us a lot about God. The history of man's sin during those deliverances teaches us a lot about man. The history of God's deliverances, God's holiness put on display. The history of man's sin during those deliverances, man's sinfulness put on display. Paul's first time through this 40-year history reveals the heart of God. Paul's second time through this 40-year history reveals the heart of man, a litany of Israel's sins. Paul's going to preach the same two books again. Exodus and Numbers. Go through the same history, but this time with a focus on the people of God and their sin. Same text, different sermon. First sermon on the character of God. Second sermon on the sinfulness of man. You say, Kyle, if Paul could preach through two books so quickly... Why does it take you so long to preach through one book? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This middle section forms a, a bookend. Verse 6. These things took place as an example for us. Verse 11. These things happened to them as an example. You see the bookends. The Israelites sinned in ways that offered, offered a parallel to what was going on in Corinth. God's old people provide formative models for God's new people. The people of God of old and the people of God in present both desire evil. The word desire means to crave. To yearn intensely for sin. The Greek word speaks of a desire that becomes so strong it controls you. A deep soul craving. Paul gives a history lesson for the second time and pulls out four times Israel desired evil. Four examples of their sin. Four records of their falling. And this is intended to help us. To help us not be guilty of the same sins. Scripture written to provide formation of life. Written also for our sake. God ordained history, moved kingdoms and nations and guided his people so you could encounter this story. Now that's mind-blowing. Not just a catalog of sins, but specific sins. Four instances of destructive cravings. And it begins in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written... The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The first sin, idolatry. This is hearkening back to Exodus 32, 6. One of the most notorious moments of sin in the Old Testament. This is the incident with the golden calf. Israel made a golden calf right after entering into the covenant with the Lord. They gave up the worship of the true God for the worship of a calf. This took place during the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The history of Israel is the history of idolatry. 
It is no accident that Paul selects this verse from Exodus and quotes it because it describes Israel committing idolatry while eating and drinking. What are the Corinthians doing? Well, we will find out in our next sermon the same thing. Sitting down to eat and drink while committing idolatry. Now, the Corinthians' idolatry was not too far off from this Old Testament idolatry. But we, in 2023, are not the least bit attracted to that form of idolatry. The reality is, we are just more sophisticated idolaters. When we hear the word idolatry, we think statues. A crude picture of bowing before a block of wood or a hunk of marble. We absolve ourselves of this sin. But idolatry happens on the level of appetite and desire. If anything is desired too much, it becomes an over-desire, an over-craving. Evangelist D.L. Moody said, You don't need to go to heathen lands to find false gods. America is full of them. An idol is whatever is, is willing to make us, like the Israelites, give up the worship of the true God. Or miss the worship of the true God. A job. A child sporting event. A comfy bed. A vacation house or RV that takes up your Sundays. We, like the Israelites and the Corinthians, will wordsmith our way to convincing others our calf worship is innocent. It's not a big deal. But we are justifying the acts we know are wrong. I'm hitting idolatry hard on two Sundays because Paul hits it hard. So I'll stop my idolatry talk there. Paul will bridge to the next sin. They sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. Play doesn't mean swing on a swing set or, or slide down a bright yellow slide or even hang from monkey bars. The first sin, idolatry, always leads to the second sin of immorality. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Second sin, immorality. Now, there was sexual immorality on the day referred to in verse 7, but verse 8 refers to a different day. You could really just pick any day in their history and find Israel guilty of this sin. This is an allusion specifically to Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9, where God's people got mixed up with Moabite women and they paid for it. 23,000 died on a single day, their carcasses strewn all over the desert. That event ended when someone ran a spear through a man and woman who were caught in the act. Such sins always bring a bitter harvest. Are the Corinthians having any problems with sexual immorality? <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. God's new people failed in the same area as God's old people. God's discipline for immorality is much worse than FFC's discipline for immorality. He just killed them all. Verse 3. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. First sin, idolatry. Second sin, immorality. Third sin, testing God. This is the story of poisonous snakes in Numbers 21. 
The Israelites had the nerve to accuse God. To accuse him of being unfaithful. They basically charged God with delivering them from Egypt so that he could take them out into the wilderness to kill them. The text says they became impatient with God. And one of the ways their impatience was shown was by saying, Why hasn't God... Testing God is sinning with a high hand, as the Puritans used to call it. And God does not take it lightly. He sent slithering serpents to bite them. And many people died. Imagine dying from multiple poisonous snake bites. We don't exactly know how many people were attacked by snakes and died, but the number must have been massive. Testing God invited his swift and severe discipline. After repenting of their sin of testing, God did not remove the snakes, but did make a way they could survive even after being bitten by the poisonous snakes. He put a brazen serpent on a pole, and when they looked at the snake on a pole, they could live, look, and live. This pre-shadowed, foreshadowed a lamb being put on a cross and people could look to him and be saved. Look and live. God controls all serpents, including the ultimate one, Satan. God will put his foot on that snake's head and send him away forever. We are all tempted to test God instead of trust God. Their sin was testing God. They grew impatient with God. God wasn't fast enough for them. Why hasn't God? That's how their impatience was vocalized. Same fallen heart condition among us. Why hasn't God given me marriage yet? Why hasn't God given me a child? Why hasn't God brought my dreams to pass? Why hasn't God supplied this object I'm so focused on? Why hasn't God rid me of this sickness? Be very careful how you talk to God. Be very careful of adopting an accusatory tone when you speak to the creator of the universe. This snake brings us back to the garden. Adam and Eve wanted what a snake promised. And they received what a snake could deliver. Same fallenness in the garden as it was in the wilderness. As it was in the church of Corinth. As it is in your heart. Four different locations. Same mutual fallenness. It was Christ who the Israelites were testing in the wilderness. And it was Christ who the Corinthians were testing in the city. And it is Christ you are testing in your heart. Let's look at Paul's teaching pattern. Neither should we, ask some of them. Neither should we, ask some of them. Neither should we, ask some of them. You see that repeated over and over? Neither should we go after idols, as some of them. Neither should we get involved in immorality, as some of them. Neither should we test God, as some of them. Notice the last one. Nor should you... Why don't we just let the scripture pick it up? Verse 10. Nor grumble, 
as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Fourth sin, grumbling. Now this could refer to many different passages in Exodus and Numbers because the Israelites were a grumbling people. They grumbled so many times. This could be the book of Numbers chapter 11 or it could be the book of Numbers chapter 16. In the first instance, they complained about the manna. We, is this manna again? We want more variety, more spice. We miss the fish we ate in Egypt and the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. They still had a taste for what Egypt had to offer. And every time you sin, you are saying, I want to go back to Egypt. I want to eat at their tables. They were complaining about the provision of God that he had so graciously given them. Once we get to the end of this chapter in the next sermon, we will find the Corinthians wanted to dine with pagans and so did the Israelites. Same sinful desire, same fallen condition focus. Israel took their gifts for granted, ignored them, despised them. They were overly secure. They became fat and presumptuous. It was nothing more than a dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will. They were murmuring. A bunch of murmurers. Always complaining. I call them the grumblers. They got one song. And it's a grumbling song. Always singing the same sad song. Grumbling is the audible expression of internal dissatisfaction. Grumbling is a vocal dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for your life. The opposite of grumbling is gratitude. Why do you grumble? Because you are discontent. Grumbling is the song of a discontented heart. Thanksgiving is the song of a contented heart. One sees God rightly, and the other does not. In my study two weeks ago, I had to repent my way through this grumbling section. The second instance of grumbling in Israel's history is number 16, verse 32. The people of God grumbled against him and his leaders, so God opened a hole in the earth to swallow them. 250 grumblers fell in the earth, and the earth closed like a mouth. They were swallowed. God sent a plague later that killed 14,000. Grumbling about God brings down divine punishment. Perhaps we should listen more and grumble less. We are all tempted to grumble against God instead of being grateful to God. To grumble against God is to attack His sovereignty. It is not blowing off steam. It is not venting. It is not expressing yourself. It is a call to arms. Do not grumble against the God who gave you everything you possess. It's the dangers of presumption that allow us to indulge in these four sins and assume there are no consequences. Verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction. In other words, you New Testament church, learn from my Old Testament church. 
You Corinthian generation, learn from the Israelite generation. You city generation, learn from the desert generation. You educated generation, learn from the uneducated generation. Have you ever thought, have you ever pondered, church, that God hasn't changed his mind on how he feels about sin? Over 3,000 years saying, avoid these sins. Paul said, look through our history books and do not repeat Israel's mistakes. Paul said this long before Churchill. The past was recorded with view to the future. The history of God's deliverances, verses 1 through 5. The history of man's sin during those deliverances, 6 through 11. Now, the reasons you don't have to repeat that history, verse 12 and 13. Now Paul is going to tell you how to fight the four sins. Idolatry, immorality, testing God, and grumbling. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul tells these church members, you think you have arrived. You think you are above these sins. Your brash self-confidence is going to be your downfall. Your arrogance makes you a prime target. Pride precedes tumbles into sin. The Israelites were once so sure of their position as well. You think you stand, but you should beware. Take heed. Be very, very careful. Watch out. Be alert. These same sins that took Israel down can take you down. Every step you take can either be a safe one or a potential fatal one. Beloved, we are not, we are not as strong as we sometimes think we are. We need a steely resolve to watch for where we can fall. It seems God wants the church at Corinth and us to think that we could fall at any moment. Bernard of Clairvaux once mentioned an old man who upon hearing about any professing Christian who fell into sin would always say to himself, he fell today, I may fall tomorrow. There is great wisdom in not trusting our own ability to stand. I heard one pastor recount. He said, when I was a boy, my father would often say, the person I trust least of all is myself. It's a sober realization that we are not above a fall. Some who have been members of this church have fallen. Some whom I have quoted in sermons have fallen. I know that. And it doesn't keep me from quoting people. I hope it's a solemn warning for you. By degrees, we get familiar with sin. And then we let our guard down. Don't ever let your guard down. The daily grind distracts you from daily danger. You are so familiar with the path, you think, I can't fall here. I've been around him so many times before. I've known her my whole life. I've never been infatuated with achievement. 
I've never experienced so much success over this sin. So I don't need to guard against it anymore. You might perhaps wonder about all this talk concerning falling into sin and not making it into the promised land. And you might be wondering, is Paul contesting salvation can be lost? This is not a fall from salvation, but a fall into God's discipline. Charles Spurgeon said, The true Christian cannot possibly suffer a final fall, but he is very much disposed to a foul fall. Paul will never, Paul will never dismiss or diminish the threat of a failure to persevere. He warns of that over and over. You better watch. You better persevere. Such warnings are not a threat to assurance. Charles Hodge comments, Those whom God has promised to save, He has promised to render watchful. R.C. Sproul said, One of the ways God preserves us is in and through our prayers for perseverance and our confession of utter dependence on His grace. There is a promise of perseverance and a warning that you must persevere. The promise and the warning work together to secure the saint. We cling to Christ as He clings to us. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I want to give you three reasons you don't have to repeat Israel's history. Three reasons you don't have to repeat Israel's history. First reason, God filters temptation. God filters temptations. God does not allow temptations to be so great they overcome us. He has a filter. He filters out all the extraordinary and uncommon temptations. Unlike your Brita filter, his filters work. Paul emphasizes the commonality of temptations you will face. These are common temptations. God's people have always faced them. You are not going to face anything other believers have not faced and by the grace of God refused. God has power to limit temptation. He will never let you be pushed beyond your limits. (laughs) Satan loves to trick us. Satan loves to trick us into thinking that our temptations are unique. Because when we begin to think like that, we will conclude that the usual remedies will not work for me. There really is no help for me. I just need to throw in the towel. Christians are not powerless in the face of temptation. It's another lie of Satan. God filters temptation. If it comes to you, it came through him 
and you can resist it. God is not asking you to do the impossible. He is asking you to do what he's enabled you to do. There is no temptation that is principally irresistible. Here's what that means for you. You have no excuse for giving into sin. Nothing unusually powerful or uncommon comes to you. Don't you believe Satan's lies that you are weak and powerless and cannot resist sin? Be encouraged, beloved. God is not going to allow you to get into an impossible situation. There are three reasons you don't have to repeat Israel's history. First reason, God filters temptation. Second reason, God supplies the way of escape. God has a filter and he gives you a slide. This phrase, way of escape, speaks of a narrow passageway where you can squeeze through and escape. You can slide away from the danger. It's military terminology. And I like this definite article, the way, the exit, the way out. Temptation always provides a way to sin and God always provides a way out. There's always a way out. You can put down the phone. You can stop watching TV. You can get filters on all your devices. You can cut off a relationship. You can ask a fellow member or pastor for accountability. You can run away. <laughs> one, one mama told her boy, don't get into the cookie jar. Later, she heard a rustling in the pantry. Johnny, what are you doing? He said, I'm in here fighting temptation. <laughs> that is not how you fight temptation. That is how some of you try to fight temptation. Pray I don't fall into temptation when we're alone this weekend. God's method is for you to escape, not for you to resist while you're looking that sin in the face. Flee your sin. Stop playing with it. There's always an escape. The arrival of a friend the ring of a phone, the book from a discipler. The question is, will you take the escape? Three reasons you don't have to repeat Israel's history. First reason, God filters temptation. Second reason, God supplies the way of escape. Third reason, God keeps you. God keeps you. The temptations that come upon you will be met with God's faithfulness. The temptations that come upon you will be met with God's faithfulness. You will never face a situation in which it is too difficult for God to sustain you or empower you. His providential care gives you the desire to seek the escape. Temporal mercies 
for temporal temptations. God will keep you if you desire to be kept. Father, use this word to make our people stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Help your people to stand on your word. Israel and the wilderness faced common temptations. The church in Corinth faced common temptations. We at FFC faced those same common temptations. The three of us have all faced those temptations and fallen into them. We have a mutual fallenness. But you sent your son to face those same common temptations as us. And he did not fall. He did not sin. We rest in the sinless one. Amen.